And we're back, the real weirdos, your hosts. I am Jesse Ketman. With me, as always, Mr. Alex Bear. How are you doing today, my friend? Doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. You ready to talk about some David Fincher? I think I am. He thinks he is. Jeffrey Casino. Hello, Welcome hello. to the podcast for the very first time. Yeah, it's great to be here for the very first time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good to have you here. <laughs> so today, doing something a little bit different. We're uh, well, we're talking about Mank, twenty twenty film by David Fincher. Mank, uh, but we're also <laughs> decided to do a little thing where we're gonna run through the Fincherography, the Ooh. Fincher cinematic universe. We can workshop that. Um, yeah, it's probably a better way to put it, but hey, you know, um, it is what it is. So, yeah, I mean, David Fincher, I don't know what your guys' specific relationship with him is, but I thought this would be a good sort of director spotlight, because A, he's one of my absolute favorite directors. I've seen literally all his movies, which is rare. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, like, like, what are your guys' history with David Fincher? Well, for me, it's uh, Fight Club. That's really was the first introduction to David Fincher. Um, I was really obsessed with the book and seeing that movie. Well, I did see the movie before I read the book, but I didn't really put two and two together until much, much later, even though they had the same name. I had just seen the movie as a when I was younger as a big Brad Pitt fan. And then when I was late, um, much older, I started reading Chuck Palahniuk and really noticed, like, oh, Chuck Palahniuk wrote Fight Club. That's one of my favorite movies. And really, that's my history with him. But after looking through his filmography, I slowly realized, oh, he is also one of my favorite directors because I have seen most of his movies and most of them are bangers. Yeah, most of them are really good. That's funny about Fight Club because I saw that movie because I was a big Meatloaf fan. Really? No. Okay. I was like, <laughs> what did Meech kind of like desire to take with you to the movies, right? Like, Meatloaf's in this. I got to see this picture. I was yeah. so confused about <laughs> He's like, Bob, oh. man. He's got this bitch tits Bob. Yeah, yeah but it's like, I, I don't even think I've ever, ever heard anyone say that they're a Meatloaf fan. <laughs> so that was really the shocking part. <laughs> I didn't know if that joke would land, um, <laughs> but it, it landed late, but it landed well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So, yeah, Alex Fincher. Yeah. What's the deal, man? I was trying to think of the first time I'd encountered him, um, both like consciously, like going into the movie and knowing that it was a David Fincher film, and then the first time that I saw a movie that I, I just didn't know it was him. Um, so, the game. We were going to talk about this movie a little bit. I mean, we're talking about all of those movies. We will. But that movie was yeah. one of the first movies that I saw that I didn't know that it was David Fincher. It might be the first movie I saw from him. I'm trying to remember if I saw Seven or Alien 3 around that time. I don't know. I was like six or seven. So, Yeah, I don't know if a... I don't know if a seven-year-old is the proper venue to, yeah. to show the movie Seven yeah. <laughs> to. It's a little extreme. But uh, the game was, I thought, such like a cool and original little intricate movie um, that 
I loved like the atmosphere. And whenever I talk about atmosphere in films, it seems like all the credit for that needs to at least go to the director or the cinematographer, right? Cause they're the ones setting up those like shots and, and everything. Um, and then from then on, it's like, he makes movies that I feel like not only are extremely, they can be highbrow, not in a bad way, but they can be considered complex literature, but they're very, very, very entertaining for just the general movie going audience, I would say. Um, and I think he does really well at capturing both like, the film snobs or the people who are really into films, you know, and then just the general population of movie moviegoers. I think he does really well in combining those two people in his audience or meatloaf fans too. Or meatloaf yeah. fans. Absolutely. I mean, his glorious tits. You <laughs> yeah. Know, Fight Club. yeah. Um, but you're getting into a little bit of what I find interesting about Fincher is that the, the meticulousness with which he creates it's like you feel like he's in command of every tiny little detail down to the edit the the score he he's a, he's a, definitely a perfectionist he'll have people do a, a tremendous amount of takes to get the ones he wants right um and i was thinking about this while i was writing in a review for alien 3 and I was like, what is it exactly? Like, how do I define what makes Fincher great? And it was a really tough question because it's, it is, I think meticulous is, is a good word, but it's just the command he has over the craft of filmmaking and also uh, a tendency towards these very dark stories that I tend to gravitate towards as well. Mm-hmm. And to your point about, him choosing material that is both highbrow and not at the same time. I think that's an important point because a lot of his movies, it feels like he's taking middle of the road kind of material and elevating it up to this upper echelon through his like pure skill yeah, and the way that he directs his actors and just every facet of filmmaking working together like so well that it's like like a master um like a like a master uh what's the word i'm looking for no (laughs) (laughs) um uh the guy who conducts a concert thing a conductor a conductor sure (laughs) we're like five minutes in i'm already flubbing all my ideas God damn it. <laughs> like a, uh, fuck. I'm so editing some of this. What's that word? Composer. Oh, got it. That's what got it is. It. He's like a composer, and he's just like, he has every element of his composition exactly the way he wants it to be, and he knows what he's doing. Yes, he does. I mean, I, I actually, am, I was going to say, like, technically, He's a very adept filmmaker, right? Um, we were talking about Nolan a few weeks ago, and he too is a, good with the mechanical stuff. But there's something about David Fincher's, like, not only that, but his, like, scripts or screenplays and his stories that seems to be, I don't know, he's just so comfortable in his style and in his way that it's hard to ignore his, like, prowess, I guess. And it's hard to ignore his 
swagger um, when he makes these movies. (laughs) Yeah, it's not super showy in like an early Paul Thomas Anderson way, like, look at me, I'm the director type of shots. It's just like so clinical and perfect. Yeah, clinical is a good word, yeah. I could see somebody who's not like, and this is going to sound super douchey, (laughs) but um, someone who's not paying attention to the craft of film as they're watching a movie and are just watching a movie would not like some of his pictures. Like Panic Room is probably one of the least loved. Um, Curious Case of Benjamin Button where you're just like watching a movie, Mm -hmm. you know, for for the story. Um, But we'll, we'll get to those. So... Fincher Fincher's first film was in 1992. He had directed a lot of commercials and music videos before that, and he continues to do so. He'll do stuff for Nine Inch Nails, who also score a lot of his movies, um, Atticus Ross and uh, Trent Reznor. I almost forgot Trent Reznor's name. I was going to be very disappointed <laughs> in myself. <laughs> I know. So in 1992, Fincher had the opportunity to follow up two of the biggest sci-fi horror films of all time, those being um, Ridley Scott's Alien and James Cameron's Aliens. And uh, this is a crazy, crazy debut film because it's almost not a David Fincher film. He, He didn't like the script which had basically been in development hell for years. There were no less than eight screenwriters. He battled for every single inch of creative ground with the producers for like two years. And when he presented his cut, finally, they decided they wanted a shorter movie, which would take extensive reshoots. And this is where Fincher basically said, fuck you, I'm gone. And they reshot a load of stuff for the film with a totally different crew. Um, so with every other Fincher film, you know that he's in command of everything, including the editing process with alien three. The reason I say you can barely call it a Fincher film is because all he did was shoot some of the footage that was used. It's impossible to say how much he still completely loathes the film. He didn't do a commentary track even years later when they asked him if he wanted to do a director's cut, he declined that too. Uh, do you think he takes such a command over his movies today because of these challenges that he faced during the filming of Alien 3? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure. I think it being his like first maybe legitimate or bona fide foray into like feature films, he probably had a, such a terrible experience that it was kind of like, you know, getting your hand burned on the stove thing. And he was like, okay, I'm... I'm never going to get myself into a situation like this again because other directors might be okay with that. You know, yeah, just slap my name on the the title card. I don't care. I was here for the movie. But, I mean, based on what Jesse's saying, it seemed like this guy was extremely invested in the story that he was trying to tell, which I can't say other directors don't do, but it shows with the rest of Fincher's work. It does. It does. Yeah, he almost quit. He was almost just like, screw this industry. But... um. Sigourney Weaver went to bat for him, which is great. And um, three years later, he got to make Seven, which we'll get to. But, like, so did you guys see the Alien 3 assembly cut, which is, it's like a half hour longer 
and supposedly much more true to Fincher's vision. I have not. No, no I have not checked that out. But you didn't see that I one, have Alex? I haven't seen that one, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, that's interesting because I, I didn't rewatch the theatrical cut, but I did rewatch this one and I was like, okay. It has a really good first half. All the character drama stuff is really good. You have Charles dance. Um, you have to kind of get over the rightfully unpopular decision to kill off the Newt character in between films, mm-hmm. which is just strange. She like that whole motherhood dynamic with her and Ripley. It was like a gold mine. But yeah, I mean, the first half is really good, but the second half just becomes this interminable slog through these industrial environments hunting for the alien. I won't go too deep into it, but they, they killed Charles Dance, who like his relationship with Ripley was like the core of the movie. <laughs> and the movie just kind of like falters from there. Yeah, it's definitely the weakest of the alien quadrilogy. Do you think Resurrection is better? I think that Resurrection is more entertaining. I think that this uh, Alien 3 becomes quite boring about halfway yeah. through. Yeah, and so, the second half. And also, I have yet to watch the quadrilogy since I was a teenager. So ah. I definitely need to rewatch it again as an adult, but I'm just kind of judging it off my general opinion when I was you know, young. The first two so are... Definitely take that with a grain of salt. Pretty kick-ass. Um yeah, well, yeah, Alien, Aliens, or yeah, that's the classics. Those are the best ones, but. What about Alien Covenant, though? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get into that. Yeah, those. I was going to say, when you said Quadrilogy, <laughs> I was like, hmm, I wonder if we're th- going to throw a Prometheus and stuff in there as well, and Alien Covenant. That's a that's a whole other yeah. conversation, my dudes. <laughs> That's a whole nother complainy conversation. We'll do that for the Ridley Although Scott. I, could, episode. I, I think, yeah, I think I could, I think I could distill it real quick. Really good filmmaking and world building, crap script. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there you go. There's our review of Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Alien Three. Um, it's a David Fincher movie, almost in name only. He shot some footage. It's kind of interesting. Um, but you know, it's not as interesting as what's to come. So three years later, he directed seven. So seven. Here we go. (laughs) With Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. We were talking when the 12 monkeys episode, this was like the breakout era of Brad Pitt. Yeah. This was Brad Pitt, like just at his high octane, pretty boy, like trying to, I think trying to break that pretty boy aesthetic a little bit because he started really taking some grittier movies around this time and i think that's really what got him some more respect as far as just general moviegoers instead of just like his pretty boy aesthetic like matt damon did this a little later tom cruise already had been doing this like a lot of these like really handsome actors were like okay i want to break out of this this nine beverly hills 90210 aesthetic and move into something more raw. And Seven is definitely where I saw later than Fight Club, but you can really see like Fincher creating his vision of dark, gritty, oppressive, tight in the chest, kind of a like you know frog in your throat movie atmospheres. And I think that's really his strongest. He's definitely a king of atmosphere. Yeah, and also his his predilection towards. You know, exploring psychopaths. True, definitely. Yeah, 
He loves his psychopaths. You get Zodiac, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl. He definitely likes to explore the the darker parts of the human mind, for sure. That is definitely his niche in filmmaking. Am I right in calling Seven a masterpiece? I mean, it's pretty perfect. It's hard to find anything really wrong with Seven as far as uh, filmmaking goes. I mean, one could argue that it's been it's kind of now entered that realm of almost like meme, you know, like what's in the box. And what's in the box yeah, <laughs> has I mean, echoed it, through it, the ages. It's permeated memed. throughout so much of like movie and TV culture that it can become, I think, campy. I think movies sometimes that do that, you can't take seriously. Or some people can't take seriously. I love seven, but I'm also just a huge Brad Pitt fan. So I love every movie that he's in. So that's kind of hard for me. But uh, yeah, Seven, I think, is safe to say uh, a masterpiece, which is impressive for a sophomore film. Do you? Wait, so you love Cool World? If you love all the Brad Pitt movies? Dude, I love Cool World. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Dude, I watch Cool World. I brush my teeth to Cool World. <laughs> Have you seen Cool World, Jeff? No, I haven't. Okay. Fuck you. <laughs> It sucks. Don't watch it. I won't, but, you know, I wanted <laughs> well, to challenge Brad your, Pitt, man. your smart ass. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say about about Seven, I mean, I don't know if I'd go to such heights as calling is it a masterpiece. Ooh. But ah, contention. I, think it's, I like it. I think it's like ex- an extremely good movie, but I, I don't know. I don't know what I, I don't know what I think when I think of the word masterpiece, but um, I don't know if time if time plays a role in that, you know, like after it, it has existed for a little while and it's a movie that whenever it's on cable or anything like that, I will always stop and watch it. Um, I think the cool thing about seven is getting in this atmosphere aspect of David Fincher, which I think is like one of his biggest, you know, pillars of his filmmaking. Um, the fact that you're in the city that is presumably like LA, but also like, Detroit, New York, like all it rains all the time, right? Which anyone who lives in actually in LA knows that that just isn't true. You don't walk out of a building or like a pawn shop and it's not like dumping rain and everything's like this darkness, right? But at the end of the movie, that's where people who live in California, they see this and you're like, oh, I've seen those. You're out in these like amber fields of like just dry brush with all of these electric, you know, poles going through and like you're like okay i i know where this is now the cool thing about it is that he switches from that first area of the dark and gritty almost noir like city to this like really bright southerny central california type look and it really doesn't break down the movie in any way it fits like the atmosphere and the tone of the script and what's happening in that scene very well um and yeah, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, you get these weird little bumps or divots in time and space when it comes to logical filmmaking, but not for David Fincher, I'm saying. I'm saying he does a very good job of smoothing those things over for the viewer. Yeah, there are two there are two points here. One is what is the point about kind of it being like pulpy almost, like serial killer kind of thing, and that goes that ties into my point about him elevating material because most of the time you have a movie about a serial killer it's like not necessarily a b picture but not in like the higher echelons of filmmaking 
Um, so that's that's an interesting point, and I completely forgot the second point. Well, I, we I, have to record this so early. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you make a you make an interesting point about seven, but you have to also acknowledge the fact that Fincher he does this special thing as far as elevating material, where he really it's all about the characters. It's all about what's going on in this moment. He it's very much a slice of time, slice of life. I hate that phrase, but slice of time. It makes you think of like a, a little romantic comedy. I know. I hate a little slice, slice of, of life, life comedy, bro. You know, it's just a little Hallmark slice of Channel. life. Just some girls hanging Fucking. out. A little slice of life, you, lifetime video of the year. Slice of lifetime yeah. video of the year. Exactly. exactly. God, I had to workshop that joke like you know, live. Uh, uh, no, but it's... Fincher is great at creating like the atmosphere, the area around in which the movie takes place means nothing. He's the king of nowhere USA. I love that about yeah. his films. Yeah. All of his films take place in nowhere. Now, Zodiac's a little different, and we'll get to that, because Zodiac is so famous for being a Bay Area serial killer, because there's just mm-hmm. not many of them. Yeah. And so, I get that. Of course, The Social Network. His more biopic movies obviously have a setting, but... As far as his just straight narrative-based fiction movies, they all really don't matter. Like Fight Club, where does Fight Club take place? Really, nowhere mm. and everywhere. You know, he kind yeah. of has this way of creating like it doesn't matter where it is. Let's talk about this moment in time, not even ten years from now and twenty years in the past. Let's talk about boom right here, from Tuesday to Friday. I would agree yeah. and disagree. I think like it, it depends what he wants to do because what he wants to do, if it matters, then it will matter. But like, like you say, the social network has more of a place to it because it's based on real places. Same with the girl with the dragon tattoo. It feels very Swedish. Um, a lot of like natural light and snow and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, but we'll get to that. And I remembered my other thing. There's a point about Alex talking about or i don't know which whichever one of you chuggleheads was talking about um like the the meme factor of seven mm. that was like the what's in the box and i i never think about that stuff when i watch the movie i am so completely 100 percent invested even after seeing it like 12 times it's a movie i'll watch every couple years and love every frame of it yeah, especially after Kevin Spacey shows up. Oh God, yeah. I mean, I <laughs> Which, love the yeah, way they we played know, him. We know, but yeah. he's still a good actor. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, he gets shot in the head anyway, so like, whatever. yeah, there you go. Like, you know, it's like it's <laughs> spoilers. Good. I love the chase. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, when they go to his apartment and you see him in these shots, like almost like an old like 1930s noir detective or villain, like dashing away in the shadow or something and his like long trench coat is behind him and he's wearing the hat or he jumps out the window and stuff like that and you're chasing this like faceless man the whole time but i will say maybe my problem with seven is just gwyneth paltrow it's not fincher's fault it's not brad pitt's fault or morgan freeman's fault because those... Do you think about her like vagina scented candles when <sighs> classic <laughs> alex just hating women I don't know. You're maybe right, Jesse. It might have just been all of the hullabaloo that she's been up to in the past decade or so that has really colored my my viewing of the film now. But, Alex uh, yeah, has goop it, on the mind. Exactly. If, you're, if, if the listener is not aware, Gwyneth Paltrow is an insane snake oil salesman. Yes. She's off her rocker. 
What are you talking and, about? And Goop products people. saved my life, Jesse. Okay. Okay. I <laughs> no, you burnt, just you just think they did. It I was burned her vagina scented candle every night and every morning, and I wake up to that smell, and I go, "Yeah, that, that's Gwyneth, all right." You know. It did it. Is it based on her specific vaginal scent? I don't fucking know. <laughs> what the fuck are you asking me? Like, I don't fucking know. I have no idea. It's a bit. Oh man. Well, our two female uh, listeners have now. <laughs> they're they're off. gone. Jesus, here we they're go. gone. <laughs> That's okay. All right, next movie, I guess. Next movie, <laughs> the game. It's yes. a game Which with I Michael seen. Douglas and Sean Penn. Jeff hasn't seen it. No, Alex, seen it. tell us about the game. The game is... Oh, I love this movie. Um, so it's about basically a guy who's like very rich. It takes place in San Francisco, I think. He has all that he wants. He's like the head of some big-time company. And his birthday is approaching. And what do you get the man who has everything, right? His brother, his younger brother, who I think in the movie is characterized as a little more off the rails, a little less like a, like austere and uptight. Played by Sean Penn. Exactly. Buys him this gift for his birthday that is literally a game that is put on by this firm. It's like a, It's like a firm that, creates personalized experiences for people and like creates this entire type of quest or game that they have to complete. So Michael Douglas goes to this firm and is like, what is this? And Sean Penn's like, you'll love it. It'll change your life. And it's this insane, like it's a game, but it's just craziness. His life just starts to go in all of these weird and strange directions. Yeah, it gets dark. It gets dark. It gets absurd. It's a the game is an interesting movie, and I'm gonna sound super douchey again here, because <laughs> it's like if you are not interested in filmmaking and you just watch this movie for the story, and you told me it was awful, I would completely understand, because the logic of this movie, like if you delve just a little bit beneath the surface, easily falls apart. It makes no sense. You're like, mm-hmm. how, what? But you just kind of have to let it go and let it ride and just like revel in the, the atmosphere and the performances and just have fun, you know? Um, and that's that sort of plays to my point about Fincher elevating material because it's, it's, this could easily be like a really bad movie in the hands of a different director. The, the writing isn't like terrible. No, it's just the construction. Yeah, Michael Douglas does really well. I mean, he's in most of the movie. It's like you're following him and his like descent into... It's not even madness, right? It's like you're, you're kind of just like, what is going on? Like, why is he... Why is the TV talking to him? And all these types of things. It's like basically you insert yourself unwillingly into the Truman Show, if that makes any sense. But less fun, yeah. less hokey less yeah like, i'm not saying the film the truman show is hokey it's just you know you don't wake up in this sterilized 1950s like universe it's just like your life as you're living it but after you signed up to play this game everything afterwards you're like is that real or is that like a hired person from this company that is directing my life in this way now because of this game 
you really don't know. And the ending is strange and also illogical, but still really fun. I, I also really like the game, despite being easily able to pick it apart. So yeah, I would recommend it as well. I recommend you see it, Jeff. I recommend people see it if they haven't seen it. Just um, if you're somebody who gets really, really frustrated at logic, just be prepared. Yeah. Yeah. So two years later, 1999, we have possibly the ultimate Fincher movie in oh, my yeah. life. One of the ultimate Fight movies. Club, baby. Brad Pitt, Edward Norton. Good stuff. Meatloaf, of course. Yeah. Number one Meatloaf fan. Number one Meatloaf fan. Helena Bonham Carter is great. She's great in this She's movie. She's great. I don't hate women. Anyone listening. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but I hear I feel a butt coming on, but her performance was terrible and ruined the movie. Oh no, no, she's amazing. I love Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, Can I talk a about bit Fight Club, please? Redemption, Jeff. Tell us about Fight Club. Oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, Fight Club. Okay, so easily, and you can probably hear the excitement in my voice. Uh, easily one of my favorite movies of all time. Top five. Same Z's. It fights different movies constantly because I'll watch it again years later and be like, oh my God, this movie's so fucking good. And then, you know, I'll think about it and be like, oh yeah, that movie, you know, I've watched it a bunch of times. You know, it's different. It sits differently. But the book is amazing. I highly recommend it. I'm not going to be one of those like, oh, but the book. No, like, just read the book, though. It's really good. Um, anything <laughs> from Chuck Palahniuk is really good. It's a little edgy now that in my 30s when I read Chuck Palahniuk. I'm like, oh man, this guy's so fucking edgy. But <laughs> there is a, there is an element to him that's still pretty pretty darn genius. Um, but Fight Club, Fight Club the movie. David Fincher probably mastering this idea of atmosphere. All the things we really talked about. Atmosphere, character development, the nowhere USA, the nothing setting. All about this like one moment in this person's life where... Things go fucking bananas. I mean, I could, I guess, I could dilute the poll, uh, the plot, not the poll of um, Fight Club, you know. Nah. But I, I, I would spare everyone. It's a movie that a lot of people have seen, and I think it really speaks to your point earlier, uh, Alex, about how he makes movies for, like, he can elevate a movie but still make it totally digestible by anyone. Like, I know yeah. a lot of. God, we sound so pretentious in this podcast. I know a lot of uh, like, you know, bro-y douchebag kind of guys who love Fight Club because exactly. it's kind of this like testosterone driven, you know, big muscles, shirtless, fighting, kind of like, you know, the plot is like very edgy and intense. And I uh, there's a lot of people who Fight Club is one of those movies like The Joker, where I feel like people are like, I'm Tyler Durden. Mm-hmm. So they they're saying they like it for the the wrong reasons. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Like it's just it's one of those movies. But then at the same time, the movie is fucking brilliant. It's gorgeously shot. It's shot in this this like triple tone palette. This like it's like sepia emerald mm-hmm. and like this almost like washed out cobalt. Like these three different colors that like kind of define the movie. And they just they kind of switch between these three colors, and that's really the movie's whole palette. To the to the point where in certain scenes where it's natural lighting, like when they're out, you almost wince like you've been inside for a long time. 
And that mm. is so amazing that Fincher is able to do that in a movie is really make you feel like, oh man, I've been like in this basement fighting all night. I actually, or like make you feel like you have insomnia. Like you're looking outside for the first time and haven't slept all night. And you're like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> so there's definitely a big element to uh, his atmosphere. And then you just have Brad Pitt killing it. You have Edward Norton, I think, personally killing it a little harder. I think Edward Norton actually is really the star of the show. I mean, Brad Pitt is oh, amazing, absolutely. but Edward Norton really just seizes this role, which is, I don't know, I think a testament a bit. I don't. I mean, I don't know the dynamic, but I don't know if it was Pitt backing off a little bit and letting Norton really take that, or maybe just like both just the understanding or like just a great team of people working together. Well, that's, I think what you're talking about is the power of the good director, Really, Truly, yeah. balancing all the elements and making them work perfectly in concert. Yeah, because I mean, yeah. Brad Pitt is a very, very physical actor in that movie, especially in Fight Club. Right? Um, he's almost like creature-like. You know, he has his shirt unbuttoned a lot, and he like moves around very slinky-like. But Edward Norton, it almost seems is like, okay, let me show you how us actors who don't look like chiseled Greek gods act, you know, like, let me show (laughs) you like how us normal plebs do it. Um, And David Fincher was able to take both of these energies and put them in the film that they could both be the leading man and it, they don't step on each other's toes. So I think that's a really good point going to the direction. It's just like, he was able to corral these two types of like different actors, you know, it's like putting, I don't know. I don't. It's like putting Alec Guinness up to like Burt Reynolds and being like, "You guys are going to be in the same movie, <laughs> and we're going to control movie. this." <laughs> no, I agree. Starring mustaches. Yeah, <laughs> it's this idea of being able to shoot a movie that emphasizes each actor's strongest yeah. points. Yeah, and I really think he does that well in Fight Club. All of Norton. See, Norton's a great facial actor. He acts very much in the brows. He acts in the eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very emotive actor, top half of the face kind of guy. And so he, he acts a lot with his eyes. And he's he has a very flat delivery because he's supposed to be the narrator yeah. in the movie. So he's like this kind of flat tone delivery. And he plays that well in all of his actions where he's like even in the, the scene where he's like fighting his own boss. Um, <laughs> oh, my himself. God. I love that scene. He delivers every line so flatly. Like, why would you do that? You know, it's just, it was, it's so, it's yeah. so brilliantly done like a narrator would. And they shoot him very close and they emphasize his face and his profile. And because he's got a very interesting profile, he's a very long face, square jaw, very lanky. And, um, but then Pitt, it's always these big wide shots of him because he's very emotive, like you said, with his arms. So he's like gesticulating and then, and, and throwing his arms around. And, and he has these wild costumes. And yeah, I mean, it just speaks to Fincher's ability to really, tie all the elements of these characters and and perfectly blend them he's like he almost reminds me of like the way when you like watch bob ross and when he like when bob ross will like put two colors together and you're like nah it's not gonna work and he gets out the blending brush and he starts blending them and you're like fuck it and it works like goddamn it you might be the first person in history to compare fincher to bob ross I don't know. I just like maybe. I mean, obviously, they, their their content has two different tones, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just the way that he's able to take these these big big actors. I mean, all I'm, I'm going. I'm looking at this list of his movies, and I'm like, every one of these actors are just huge, and he's just able to really like 
weave them together in such a beautiful way and it's just such a testament to his um his filmmaking ability yeah you have the just insane darkness and social commentary in that movie that's really interesting it has this sly edge to it where it's super comedic just darkly so brad pitt flying around the house on a bicycle and like a tattered bathrobe with with pornography on it (laughs) and yeah it's just great if you haven't seen fight club watch fight club and if you want an uh, even another reason jared leto gets his face punched in real hard yeah, he gets oh, his yes. teeth knocked out. Yes. And <laughs> he gets taken everyone wants down. to see that. Yeah. So, <laughs> he looks like a little blonde bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, three <laughs> years later, we go to Panic Room where Ugh. Jared Leto gets shot in the face. And has cornrows. Spoilers. Yeah, the only cornrows. good part of this movie, by the way, <laughs> is Jared Leto getting shot in the uh, face. So when was when was the last time you watched Panic Room? Because I rewatched it earlier this week because I couldn't remember it very well. <laughs> And I I actually really liked it. Oh, you son of a bitch. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I I can't. I'm going to tell you when the last time I saw Panic Room. Last time I saw Panic Room was probably 2004, 2005 on like TNT. Mm, and I probably right. saw like the back half of it. And I was like, this movie sucks ass. <laughs> and then that was probably like the last time I saw Panic Room. Try it again. So it's uh, this is another one where it's like he's sort of elevating material. I, I hate to keep going back to this, but it's true. And it's the performances are really good. You have Jodie Foster, Forrest Whitaker wins the movie, in my opinion. Um, you have a young Kristen Stewart, hilariously, um, as the daughter. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 a movie that I could really give or take the story but it's it's not it's more about just the construction of the plot more so than the plot you know um and the dynamic of Forrest Whitaker like actually having a heart while also trying to get into this panic room to get the treasure where mm-hmm. where these ladies are and um it's it's another one where it's like you can see Fincher if you're aware of it being in command of all elements of atmosphere filmmaking the score is super interesting and yeah i i mean i i enjoyed it <laughs> yeah like alex what's your thought on pan- thoughts on panic room i saw it in within the past year um it was on one of the streaming services uh when we were up at school and i just had some downtime so i threw it on um i enjoy it i think it might be I don't want to say it's one of his like weakest movies because I hate even applying that adjective to it. But if we're talking about you know the entire work of David Fincher, I I think you're right though. Yeah, um, it's minor. But I, I I actually really enjoy it too. And going to like nowhere USA, it's like literally we're gonna go to this panic room and everything is going to take place inside of this house. And he does that so well. He does it so well without boring you or like it's not like rear window you know they're not like sitting in the same shot or frame for the entire movie but it <laughs> i watched that this week too that's funny. oh it's a great movie but i mean i know so good I, I don't get on people when they're like can we they like need to get up when they watch that movie and walk around for a second but this movie i actually thought i loved the way forrest whitaker's character develops in it because you have a sense that he's a little hesitant to be Mr. Cruel, badass guy. But then you realize towards the end, his goal 
is almost to get the treasure inside the panic room to then save the, the women inside of it. Because he's like, you know, my partners are going to absolutely kill you unless you give them what they want. So he plays this role of like, I don't know, Fincher just did really well with directing Forrest Whitaker in the film. Also, I just wanted to say that the really bad guy in the movie, the really bad dude that they bring along with that gets his hand smashed in the door, mm-hmm. his name his name is Dwight Yoakam, and he's like a country music star. He's like a oh, well-known I didn't like, know that. country music star within country music circles, right? He's almost like when you ask a country musician, like, oh, who are the guys that you like? You know, he'll come up in, in those names, but you don't see him being like a big big time guy and i just i've never known what the connection was with him and david fincher i don't know if david fincher was like hey you want to be in this movie and he's like yeah sure and he's like just play the most sadistic motherfucker you can and he's like okay i'll do that yeah but he does very well i have no well. idea i have no idea i didn't i didn't even see anything about that in like the the notes and stuff that i was reading afterwards <clears throat> little imdb factoids and stuff yeah so yeah, I don't know, but yeah, yeah. Um, Forrest Whitaker, he—I mean, spoilers—he basically sacrifices himself. He could get away, mm-hmm. but he saves the women mm-hmm. to his own detriment. And so, like, his kind of struggle is mostly the the heart of the film. And um, I also really like it when movies take place in a single location and are done well mm-hmm. because that more than anything i think speaks to the power of the director and the cinematographer as well like i will always point to 12 angry men as a perfect example because that's like literally just a boring room with people talking yeah and the way that the director constructs it just makes it so powerful throughout and and builds it and fincher i think does the same thing here the the camera movement is really interesting throughout. It's very fluid. It goes between levels and through through little holes in the wall. Oh yeah, um, yeah, it does do that. It has a very, it has a very like, like you're spying on them. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, no, definitely. I don't know exactly how to quantify it. It does that thing where it'll move through spaces that the characters cannot move through, but the audience can, right? So you see the stucco, the drywall, the insulation, the actual frame of the wood and the wires and everything. And then it just passes through that very quickly into the, or not quickly, but you know, you see that it goes into like the different rooms. It's like looking inside of like almost like a twisted type of like dollhouse. Um, yeah. You're like an omniscient observer. It's very, it's, it's interesting. There's a bit of voyeurism there. Voyeurism. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I've been searching for that word for like two minutes. Yeah, and that's I think that's something that Fincher does as well. He almost makes you feel like a pervert for watching his movies, mm-hmm. not because not because they're pornographic or anything, but just the way he places you in the context of a scene and often like the way he chooses to to shoot and edit. Yeah, it's almost like we shouldn't be privy to these thoughts going on in the character set or even in the whole experience of the film. It's like as an audience member you're like, hmm, I feel slightly uncomfortable in knowing this about this person or, or that about this person. But it's not like you said, there's nothing sexual about it. That word is so charged with the sexual aspect, you know, voyeurism. That Oh, definitely. It's I, It might even be just like solely for that purpose. But I like using it as well for, 
Def- especially for his films. Well, the voyeurism is just, it's more of, I mean, the way I think about it is just this, there's this idea of watching someone who doesn't know that you're watching them. That's really where the creepiness comes in. And then like people can co-opt that ideal mm-hmm. for whatever they want. But really the idea of voyeurism is just the kind of pit in your stomach feeling when you know you're watching something that someone didn't know was being filmed. Yeah. And that he's very, very, very good at that. And I would definitely agree. He definitely puts uncomfortable moments in his movies on purpose to kind of change your perspective on particular characters or a particular scene. I mean, there's plenty of uncomfortable moments in Fight Club. I, we don't even need the. I mean, the whole, you know, Bob scene is pretty strange and off-putting. <laughs> the girl with the dragon tattoo is also that way. Yeah, we'll get, we'll we'll get, get to there. that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interest. It's an interesting point to make because I mean, really, if you want to look at it broadly, that's what cinema is. You you're having a voyeuristic window into a story with with. I mean, generally, the characters aren't aware. Um, sometimes they are like in Funny Games. You know, one of our favorite films. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> So, moving on, five years later, 2007, he makes Zodiac, the uh, cool Avengers prequel starring Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo, and uh, he's got Jake Gyllenhaal in there as well. Mm-hmm. Yep, fantastic film. Really, really love this one. My only gripe with this film is I wish it was like two hours longer. How lo- It's very long. It's a very long it's film. Like, That's strange. Two and a half, three hours or something yeah, like that? Yeah, it pushes around that, that area. I just mean it more in like, I just very much enjoyed like the character development, the story, the like oh, whole atmosphere that I just wanted like more of it, you know? Um, I don't mean like it was a mistake that it wasn't longer. Sorry, I should have clarified that. Yeah. I just, I, I really like that movie too. I think it's extremely entertaining. Yeah, it's a very entertaining movie. I didn't know, I didn't really know a lot about the Zodiac before watching this movie. I mean, I... I've researched a little bit about him in the past just because it's a local kind of folklore thing Mm -hmm. for us, but never really looked into him. And uh, so this movie was kind of like my first introduction to that. And I think, you know, Robert Downey Jr. really kills this movie. I mean, he really just like plays up this kind of like douchebaggy newspaper reporter guy really well. And Gyllenhaal does well at what Gyllenhaal does, which is being like a scared mouse in a field the entire movie. Oh, he's great at he's great in pretty much everything, in my opinion. I really love Jake Gyllenhaal. He's great. He just he's great at a particular thing, which is like oh. <laughs> that's what he's really. I great don't know. At. He's done good at being a soldier. He was he was uh I haven't seen it, but he's like a villain in the new Spider Man. I can't Shocked? comment on that. The shocked is his number one that's his definitely go-to emotion in movies is like mm. shocked or taken aback about something i don't know i can just that's always what jake gyllenhaal looks like to me <laughs> but i digress yeah the curious the, the interesting thing about zodiac for me and i also really i really like this movie it didn't have the best reception it had kind of lukewarm but i think it was just kind of slow and dark for people but I, I almost wonder if this is one of Fincher's most personal films in a way because it's about an obsessive guy like putting together this project in an obsessive way, <laughs> which is how Fincher makes <laughs> movies. And he did like years of research to do it. 
and planned it meticulously. Like there's five years between Panic Room and Zodiac. It's not the longest he's gone between films, but it's still a pretty decently long time. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely like, there's an aspect of the shock value. I mean, that scene on the lake in Zodiac, uh, like Barryessa scene, mm-hmm. where like the Zodiac comes and like stabs the, the the two people after like tying them up, and like that scene's hardcore. Like that's a really, it's shot flatly. It's very quiet and muted. The, you know, showing the beauty of Lake Barryessa, but it's such a like dark and awful thing. And it, you know, it's all a true story too. So that kind of adds to like the the tension and the the fear that he's trying to generate but was that the one during as, the day yeah as far as like speaking to his obsessiveness i mean i think that's a i don't know that's a bit of an interesting point to make because i mean while i would call him an obsessive filmmaker he definitely is about the particulars and the details i think it's more like he has a more interest in just the dark psychology of the mind i think that's a big reason why he's so close to trent reznor who also has that interest is like I just think he really loves like the dark side of human pathology. Yeah, that's one hundred percent. And if anyone can create like an atmosphere of that feeling, it's it's Trent and Atticus doing their thing. Um, but yeah, going back to that scene that you were just talking about, Jeff, that's one of the first scenes in like a either a horror or like a murder type movie where I was legitimately like afraid, even in the broad daylight of the shot. Like, there there are horror movies when I watch them, like, I'm never afraid when the lights are on, right? Because it's kind of like a little trope type thing. Like, if the lights are on, you'll probably be okay from any type of, like, jump scares or anything like that. But that shot of the hooded figure, like, walking through that dry, like, gold brush, it was just so, I don't know, it was just so disturbing. And I felt actually scared in that moment. Like, this is creepy. Um but yeah, maybe the Zodiac just had too much of like a extravaganza folklore around him that people, when they saw this movie, they, they weren't like satisfied with the way that Fincher was telling the story. You know, they're like, I want to see the blood and the guts and like the the weird places that he lives in. And it's really just the story of like these three kind of tertiary figures that are trying to figure out what's going on. You have the detective in Ruffalo and then you have, you know, the small time little like Jeff said, like, hey, I'm just here to write papers, like in Jake Gyllenhaal. And then you have, you know, the like weathered, like, uh, oh, you don't know what you're doing. I mean, Robert Downey Jr. was great in it. But that's like what his character plays. So yeah, I think people I think when people tuned into Zodiac, they're probably expecting like a fun serial killer movie, but it's really about an obsessive nerd <laughs> for most of it, you know? It has this it has this oppressive dark tone, but it is just like about an obsessive nerd tracking down all these leads very meticulously. It's not like it's not like a Jason Voorhees extravaganza or something like that. But it's not also so, an action horror thriller with the bad guy behind the gun chasing the dude in the car. It's not like deja vu or something like that. It's very much just like a code breaking geek. People are like, oh, we don't want to listen to you, nerd. And he's like, I'm pulling up his glasses. Uh, but, the, but the facts and the figures. And it's just like, it's like that kind of movie. But it's like actually the nerd. Exactly what the nerd actually like wins in the end. Oh, well, nobody man. wins because he was never caught. But That's hilarious. Hmm. Well, yeah, Zodiac, great picture. Very meticulous, methodical, atmospheric 
great performances, just a whole lot of scenes, yeah. and they're all good. The color palette as well that Jeff was talking about. I think that was really important to bring up because I think that color palette of the sepia emerald washed out cobalt is like the perfect way to describe most of his more recent films and everything from maybe Fight Club on. You know, he took this like, okay, this is my color palette. This is the tones that I'm going to use. He uses cold, rusty tones. That's definitely what I would call his palette. Is anything cold, anything rusty? I was David Fincher movies are like, I would call them like, like a like a like an old junkyard chain link fence, like early in the morning, where the like where it's still cold and dewy on the fence. Maybe in like Eastern Europe or like the East Coast, where the skies are like gray. To that point, we have a movie the next year, which is very much not looking like that. <laughs> yeah, the curious case <laughs> yeah. of Benjamin Button, with Brad Pitt. Uh, the the this movie is shot in firelight. The wonderful Kate Blanchett. <laughs> Tilda Swindon. Yeah, it feels it almost feels like like a Spielberg movie. Those like warm like super warm lighting, like everything has this oh glow around it. This uses the orange and red side of the palette of the color wheel like just to its maximum. They're like what shade of orange have we not used in this movie <laughs> yeah, yet? Seriously. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it in like uh, probably a uh, 10 years or so. I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. But my my abiding memory is that it's so bright and warm. I I I'd have to see it again. I remember I liked it, but I think I liked it more for the direction, like just the, the movie making, than I did the story. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, this movie is a lot like um, how I put like Hugo mm. in the category of of Coppola. It's that's uh, Scorsese. Fuck. God damn it. All right, retake. <laughs> One of those Italian uh, guys. I, fuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. Now we're keeping it. <laughs> I put this movie in the same category as I put maybe Hugo with Scorsese. Is like It's a movie that doesn't really fit his dynamic and his frame, but it's still a beautiful movie, and it's still done really well. The Benjamin Button is definitely not... At all Fincher's wheelhouse, but yeah, he still, I, I believe at least, I think he really crushes it. I think Brad Pitt plays a very difficult role very well, uh, which I think is very much his mantra. But it's it's just a warm, comforting, I mean, it's like, it, it's almost a Christmas movie yeah. in my mind. It's almost yeah. like that time of year that you would watch it. It's like, oh, we're going to, it's just after Thanksgiving, so we're going to sit down and watch Benjamin Button. Right. You know, it's, it's one I wonder, of those movies. I wonder if it was like David Fincher wanting a palate cleanse after deep diving for like five years into Seriously. The, obsessive, the obsessive Zodiac thing. I could easily see that because if you see it, then he's next. Then after that's the social network, yeah. which is also like different. It's a little more of a deep dive into like, but more of like a, a social, I mean, the, the social network, but with more of like a social aspect and a biopic type of lens instead of like mm-hmm. getting into the mind of a killer <laughs> yeah benjamin button feels like a palate cleanser for sure i'd have to rewatch it um alex what did what did you think of benny buttons yeah this this movie is like the most sentimental of the david fincher movies i would say it almost seems hmm, it almost veers on like forrest gump e like spielberg type of energy <laughs> yeah, it does you know 
And it's, it's like you could almost see it being played by Tom Hanks or something. Yeah, it's like American folktale or American mythology almost, you know? Um, and it's, I love the locations of it. I love all the different characters and like the different experiences that the main character goes through in his life. Um, he's with the sailor. He's with the button maker who's his adoptive father, who's also in a lot of Guy Ritchie movies. Um, he's a... Uh, you know he has the the maternal figure, the house like caretaker person. I don't remember any of this. Yeah, I, I mean <laughs> I have the movie pretty well burned into my memory, especially the ending scene. There's like a voiceover that Brad Pitt does, and yeah, I remember him with his CGI young face on a motorcycle. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's one of my memories. Like it's one of those one movies where I remember how I felt about it, and I remember what it looked like. But I don't remember too much more, so I'll just I'll just let you guys take this one. I mean, the practical effects and CGI of yeah. Benjamin Button are probably the weakest part of the movie. Have yeah. they not aged well? Yeah, it's just not like the aging. <laughs> oh. Ooh. <laughs> uh, I like. By the way, the movie's the about video. Brad Pitt aging in reverse. Yeah. It hasn't, yes, it hasn't aged well, you fucking jackass. <laughs> um, it's more just, yeah, it's it's just they didn't, the old ben, old Brad Pitt's good, but I think old age makeup has already been pretty perfected at that point. Yeah. But young, like de-aging, digital de-aging, makeup de-aging, had just started, yeah. and it was just not... His younger versions are just not, they're just not good. It's like that Instagram <laughs> not, filter or something. Well. Yes, exactly. You can really see like the facial mapping that they're putting over it. And it's like when he moves, it's like kind of like shaky. And yeah, uh, it's no, he's no Grand Moff Tarkin. Yeah, all right. exactly. <laughs> Although it, even that, even that was weird. That like, was unsettling. Something's off that, there. that was so uncanny valley. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, you know, uh, the core of this movie is it's a love story. It's not like you guys said. It's not like a, you know, this weird like dive into like the super or not the supernatural, but the really psychological or things like that. But it is, in its own sense, very philosophical. It's about you know like, what do you say about life? Like, what can a man aging backwards tell us about our lives? And that's basically what the movie is. And then he also has you know very strong romantic connection with Kate Blanchett's character and it's like another thing to ponder what does aging backwards do to love you know um it's funny now that I'm thinking about him like moving backwards in time I'm just thinking about our tenant discussion and I'm like it was you you motherfucker it was Benjamin Button the whole time who started this <laughs> reversal of like entropy and war and all this stuff he did it all for oh, Kate Blanchett and yeah, exactly. And why wouldn't you? She's she's lovely and she's, oh, she's fun great. to watch. She's I, such I a great actress. Yeah. The ending of Tenet would be so beautiful if it was him on the phone right before he kills the um <laughs> the weapons dealer woman yeah. and he's just like on the phone and it's just like and it's like oh it was it was him the whole time and it just clips to like digitally de the real protagonist. Yeah, exactly. So one more thing I'll say about this movie is that I feel like he might have wanted an Oscar. David Fincher might have like, that's like the most he was self-aware, I would say. And he was reaching out to the Academy almost with Mm. like, look, I have empathy. 
I have my master filmmaking. I have big name actors who are acting well. It's like this American Americana type, you know, celebration of just these weird little folk stories that mesh together. That's probably the only bad thing I would say about it is that it just gets a little too self-aware or like panders to the Academy. But I don't know. That might just be the Forrest Gumpy aspect. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I could see how you'd think that by watching it. I I don't know if that fits in with Fincher's like ML, but you could be correct. I don't know. The funny thing is, his next movie, The Social Network, was the one of his biggest Oscar grabbers. It didn't win. It did. It only won screenplay, editing, and music. It's also Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross did the score. Mm -hmm. They do most of his movies. Um, but it was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, and Jesse Eisenberg, uh, directing, cinematography, all that stuff. Um, and I, I rewatched The Social Network uh, just a couple days ago, and boy, oh boy, is that movie good. Whew. My lord. It is yeah. so good. So oh. thoroughly good. <laughs> it's his tightest movie if i have to steal my favorite adjective from from jeff i love that like description of tight when it comes to movies yeah. it's his i think this is like 100 percent cleanest trimmest like most masterful movie as far as the filmmaking so goes interesting so interesting out of all of his movies that i've seen even though Panic Room, I dismiss Panic Room because it's an older movie that I haven't seen in a long time. This is probably my least favorite Fincher movie. Oh, oh interesting. Okay. Why is that? Yeah, I, I one, I just, and I know this is gonna sound so like, yeah, you don't like. I, I'm not a huge fan of Jesse Eisenberg. Me neither. Um, I just, he's yeah, very punchable. Yeah, as an actor, his face yes. is very yeah, punchable. I, just, I don't. He's like he reminds me of Michael Sarah, and I'm not a huge <laughs> Michael Sarah fan either. Like, I just don't like that aesthetic. Yeah. In in an actor. Um, I don't give a fuck about Facebook or like the creation of Facebook. Now I understand the movie is beyond way more than like it's about way more than that, and it and it does it in a brilliant way. But I just, I just don't, I just didn't care. I found it to be a little obnoxious at times. I found all the characters to be really hateable, like the 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 worst type of nerds, like the nerds that like all the like gatekeeping 4chan nerds were like spawned in that room. It is an incredibly mm-hmm. douchey little universe. Yes. It's just it's just I just I I get this like sour taste in my mouth when I when I watch Social Network and I've only seen it in its completion once. I think I think that's kind of the point maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm I do not too. saying that I'm not saying that that Maybe he, David Fincher's so good he's like turning me off with his talent. He's like, <laughs> "Hey, I'm going to make a world so real that it's just going to make you like hate it." And it's like I don't hate the movie. I think it's a good movie. There are some certainly really cool scenes in it, but for me, it's just it's just off putting, and when you combine it with Jesse Eisenberg, it's just like <laughs> eh, fucking fuck you, noob. It's just yeah. like that type of nerd aesthetic and vibe, and just like I don't know, it just feels like a giant. It's like it, it might, it could, be, you could rename this like movie to like the creation of 4chan. And I would be like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Jeff's more of a MySpace guy, anyways. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's friends with Tom still. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> me and Tom got a thing, all right. <laughs> I just dredged that so far back from my memory banks. <laughs> yeah, Tom, dude. He's sitting Tom, in front of the little whiteboard. With Tom, yeah. Like looking at the camera, and it was like you sign up for MySpace, and you already had that one friend. That's right, man. He knows what's up. 
But yeah, I I think that like he captures this like almost like Harvard snobbiness and you go even snobbier with like PC master race coders, things like that. Anyone in that type of like computer science gig. Um, the forming of like Silicon Valley and like exactly d- douchey sandals and stuff like that. When he opens like, the door at his California home and Jesse Iverick's just like decked out and like, this is what Californians wear. It's like puka shells and like you said, his sandals and everything. It's a, I, I think it's a great movie. I think the soundtrack is fucking amazing. I listen to it, it is. like all the time. Well, yeah, it's the best part of the movie. Yeah, I mean, if you put Trent Reznor on anything, it's going to be the best part. <laughs> <laughs> the best part of the movie "Wanted" is the one Nine Inch Nails song. <laughs> What's "Wanted"? The, the curve the, the bullet um, one with James. The curve McElroy. the bullet, Angelina Jolie, James McAvoy. Oh, I haven't seen that. Is Samuel Jackson in that? Uh, you know Morgan Freeman. Fuck. Let's edit that out. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, the social network, you got two votes for really, really great and one vote for pretty good. It's definitely his most critically acclaimed film. The critics just loved this movie. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, this movie is like rife for like popular and critical like analysis. I mean, it's just like about it was the first movie that really like cracked open that door. Yeah, it is. You're right. And like showed you like the behind cuz before that this movie like Facebook was kind of mysterious. It was like this 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 huge monster that everyone was really addicted to. Unassuming. It wasn't just yeah. like it wasn't just like this like stop before the grave that it is now. Yeah. 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 Or yeah, just if, like all old people if, stop before they die to like, talk about their opinions. If there's I mean, if there's just, any problem with the movie now with, with eleven years behind it, it's that wow, you probably humanized Mark Zuckerberg a little too much. Yeah. Yeah. No, like he's exactly basically like just the, a super villain at this point. Yeah. Yeah, the Winklevoss twins, like it shows you that like that whole kind of dynamic and like this whole new world yeah like undercutting nerds yeah but, it's so it definitely it, it peeled back the the veil on on an area and a genre that wasn't really explored but it's oh, a window yeah. it's, just, it's oh. a window into a world that i didn't understand and wa- still want nothing ever to do with you know? it spawned <laughs> some very annoying social i hate saying that word in regards to this movie but like social idiosyncrasies or quirks you know all of a sudden all my friends were ready to be startup people they were all being entrepreneurs right they would all call themselves entrepreneurs and they'd use this movie as like kind of like a springboard for their inspiration and they would always talk about how he had he like dropped out of harvard and was like fuck the system and all this stuff and i've always had to remind them like you know he got into harvard first he had to like you, you have to work hard and you have to like put your head down and be like pretty decently smart to get some of this stuff done. It's not like he was just some random college frat boy dropout who was like, "Oh, I'm going to make this, you know, this like random program." So, no, yeah, it was it was if you take away any elements of morality, it's it's a pretty astonishing story. Oh, yeah. Like it's, you're just like, "Wow, that's like but it almost takes somebody who's that idiosyncratic and like amoral to mm-hmm. a point to to be such a a weird like tech genius and make that much money yeah and fuck and fuck people over hard fuck like his your, best friend yeah, over. like your only friend yeah who's probably i think that's the best performance in the movie is andrew garfield 
Yeah, um, definitely. He really wears he really wears his heart on his sleeve, and he's good at that. Um, but yeah, let's let's move on. The next movie is one year later. Fincher's banging him out at this point. 2007, yeah. 2008, yeah. <laughs> 2010, 2011. It's weird for him, but it won't last, unfortunately. But we have um, the most understated of James Bond films, The Girl <laughs> with the Dragon Tattoo with Daniel Craig, Rooney oh, Mara, who was also in Social Network, and I really like her, by the way. I, I really like Rooney Mara and everything I've seen her in. Yeah. Um, yeah, Christopher Plummer, Stellan Skarsgård. Alex doesn't. Yeah. That's, that's Wait, a is woman, Rooney Mara okay? a woman? <laughs> Oh God! Is this a thing now? No, <laughs> this is gonna I, it might a be thing. a thing. I, I'm trying to make oh, it a thing. Poor I really Alex. am. I'm trying to make uh, Alex into the show. For our next movie, podcast. it will be fried green tomatoes and magnolia steel magnolias. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Let's go Let's hard with super the girl power. Yeah, Alex Veers yeah, yeah, complete 180. <laughs> yeah, the vagina monologues. Yeah. Uh, God, this makes us all sound so horrible. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. Oh, okay. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah. Fuck do I love this Great. movie. Great, oh, man. Great stuff. Oh. Yeah. Fuck do I love this, this movie. movie. Why do you love it? angry. Really? Oh, this movie. Well, let's do, ahead, let's do love here. first. Let's, let's do yeah. love. Let's Jeff. Do, yeah, I was about to say, let me go for it because I really want to see what you're saying. But uh, I love this movie, one, because, again, let's talk atmosphere. This movie is Swedish as fuck. Yeah. Which is great. This movie is really, really, I think it's probably one of his darkest movies as far as just tone. This movie is shot, like you're freezing cold when you're watching it. It's all the deep blues, piercing snow whites, blacks, like just this whole movie is all subdued color tones, which I really enjoy. I love that cold feeling. It makes you feel like you want to wear a sweater. I watched this movie actually with my little brother when he was probably 16, 17, and there was two gratuitous anal rape scenes in this movie. And uh, the whole time I was watching it, I was like, okay, this first one, this this is a pretty gratuitous anal rape scene. And then they have a second one, and I'm like, oh my god, again? <laughs> like, how are you going to do this twice in the same movie? And I remember looking over at my at then time 16-year-old brother, he's 24 now, and being like, uh, this is awkward. <laughs> like this is kind of an awkward thing, but I saw it in films, and it's. I mean, Daniel Craig is just. I mean, he's great. I mean, say what you want about James Bond. And, I like, love it. Campy those like, films can be. I mean, not the new he's ones, man. Great. The new ones aren't campy. Um, still in Skarsgård, Christopher Plummer. I mean, everyone just crushes it. It's it's dark. It's spooky. The twist really nailed me because I had never read the books or anything like that. So the twist really got me, mm-hmm. and. Um, I just, yeah, it's a great film. Yeah, Rooney Mara just kills it. Yep. It's just really very dark convincing. And really, yeah, it's really. Uh, it is a very atmospheric convincing. film. The the available light, just the inhospitable feeling that of dread that's just over you at all times. The score, especially. Um, so good. The score, like the, the sort of like ambient drone that, that pulses at the back of your mind as you know something terrible is going to happen is super well done um great story of course um why does it make you angry alex so i i regret saying that so early i might have spoken too soon but it that's not what i meant about the film doesn't make me angry the 
breakdown and collapse of what should have been a trilogy makes me angry. Oh yeah, because uh, they it never it never uh, continued. Yeah. They gave up. I'm, yeah, I mean Daniel Craig was you know he had issues, conflicting issues because he was doing James Bond. I yeah, think those movies point, take like a year to shoot. They're crazy. At one point, he said after doing one of the James Bond movies that he'd rather like stick like train stakes into his eyes than think about filming another girl with a dragon tattoo at the time. It wasn't because he hated <laughs> filming that movie. It was just he was like so zapped and he was like out. so tired, right? Um, and it's kind of a good thing though, yeah, that they didn't do it then because like who wants a tired Daniel? Craig? Exactly, the guy already looks asleep half. The I time. know, right? Like that was his <laughs> whole aura in in. No, I love this movie. I fucking I I'm just so like I was so ready for sequels because they set it up they set it up well for a sequel. Um, the books are very interesting, and I wanted to just add that there's like a meta biopic aspect of this film from the guy who wrote the books. So the guy who wrote the books was the he was the editor of this magazine. I think it was actually called Millennium in Sweden. And he wrote a lot about political corruption and about how, like, the world sees Sweden as, like, in, you know, the Scandinavian countries is, like, these perfect places. But let me show you why they aren't. You know, there's uh, underlying Nazi kind of feelings that you get in the movie as well. One of the characters, the brother, says to Daniel Craig, he says, you know, Daniel Craig's like, oh, you're a bit of a fascist, aren't you? Or are you, like, a Nazi or whatever? And he's like, oh, don't be mad at me just because I'm the only one in the family who shows it. Everyone, he's like, everyone in Sweden knew what was happening in Germany at the time. And he's like, I'm just shameless enough to actually put the flags up in my house because I knew what I was a part of. And so the writer of these books brought that up a lot in Swedish culture. And he was feared. He like actually feared for his life. He was like, the Swedish government is going to try and stop me. Silence. Well, they did, right? He died under like mysterious circumstances and stuff. He apparently had a heart attack while he was writing either the oh, third okay. or the fourth book. Sure. He was working at like the top of this old office building where he would go up and down the stairs every day. And apparently, from what I've read, his diet consisted of cigarettes and coffee. So he was a slightly overweight gentleman, but going up and down stairs, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, maybe into your 40s or 50s. Plus the added stress of thinking that, you know, you're actually going to get boosted out of your either job or life or whatever. That might have contributed to it. But I loved all of that energy and the key word here, atmosphere, that was put into the girl with the dragon tattoo. I love this movie so much. All of that intrigue that you were just talking about, all of that kind of dark twisty all that feelings mm-hmm. is so perfectly woven into this movie oh, it's, that's what you feel yeah. the entire time he, if that is the aesthetic that the writer was trying to get then fincher definitely grabbed that and ran with it because this whole movie feels like the twists and the turns and the moves you're like just like in this dark hallway and like all of a sudden it's a left and then a right mm-hmm. and you're just kind of following this crazy story and it's paced really well uh the the main character is that um Rooney Mara who is the main character the lady the main the lady the main female character yeah the, uh, the uh the the gothy the gothy hacker lady yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah that's Rooney Mara that's what I thought yeah she is fucking great just really well done this kind of 
broken, damaged person that's like trying to claw her way, but it's still like incredibly smart and has the skills. And it's a great narrative on like kind of like this, the way that we we can silence women sometimes. I know Alex will hate. This yeah, talk exactly. About this. What do we talk about? <laughs> like the way we silence women sometimes. Oh my lord. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's it, it. It definitely plays into those really well. I'm sorry. No, no, yeah, it illuminates. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm touching on subjects you wouldn't necessarily agree with. Oh, well, I thought you were, you were apologizing to him for a different thing, but no, you're, you're leaning full in. Yeah. <laughs> um, it illuminates, you know, like the sexual violence that occurs in these like ward of state kind of um, socialist democratic countries. Not to get into politics, but like that's just what it is. Like. The state will provide for you, you know, in Sweden, if you are like an orphan or foster kid or something like that. And it just shows how dark and how seedy these places can get and violent. Eventually, these places can get. Are you telling me? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that a Fincher movie has psychotic perverts in it? Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, <laughs> There was something about this movie, though, that he did that psychotic pervert thing so well. I mean, when you start playing. Enya in a room that is like super it's like it's like Ikea's version of what a murder room would look like right when Stellan Skarsgård has them tied up it's like really clean and really like oh look at this this is the demonstration room like we have these in Ikea's like where you tie up your victims and put on Enya and oh you tied them up with the, with the props yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I tie mine up with the skull. Exactly. <laughs> Let me find the instruction manual around here somewhere. Oh, it's like these man. playful little images oh, of man. guys, you know, setting Gotta up have an a Ikea death contraption. Sweden. Yeah, exactly. Sweden. <laughs> but I love that scene where he's he has Daniel Craig tied up and everything. And Stellan was... Ah, he's a great actor. I mean... Pretty much everyone with the last name Skarsgård is a Yeah, it seems, it seems that way. <laughs> But no, this movie, like I said, the reason that I said it makes me so angry is because I wanted this to be like an epic film series. I wanted yeah. Rooney Mara. I wanted freaking Daniel Craig, Christopher Plummer, you know, the whole thing. David Fincher. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I was really yeah. disappointed making, when it collapsed. David Fincher making a film series. Well, that's just like a funny I concept mean, to in me. In between these movies starting around 2010s, he did start a couple really well-loved um television series he got house of cards off the ground directed some of that and more recently he did mind hunter i have not seen either of these but i they're very well loved mm-hmm. yeah i haven't seen and he's he's kept he's kept doing music videos like he's done music videos for nine inch nails a perfect circle aerosmith he's done michael jackson madonna iggy pop billy idol and Alex's favorite, Roy Orbison. He directed a oh. Roy Orbison video. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Meatloaf? Um, uh, he might have done Meatloaf. It's not in my notes, but <laughs> yeah. um, hopefully, maybe that's the connection. Maybe that's the I'll direct your connection. video. You'll be in my movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say you got we'll get, bitch tits. We'll get the Meatloaf crowd in. Um, so, yeah, 2014, Gone Girl. Uh, we were talking a little bit. Neither of you guys have seen Gone Girl, starring no, our Lord and so Savior Ben Affleck. This should be uh, quick. Yeah, um, Gone Girl, really good movie. Uh, another case, I think, of Fincher taking a sort of pulp 
you know, novel story from like, you know, the supermarket shelves kind of and elevating it by being David Fincher and just making an immaculate production. Uh, great performances. Rosamund Pike is really good as just like a psychopath lady. Mm-hmm. Ben Affleck does well. Um, I like Ben Affleck when he when he isn't doing terrible things, um, <laughs> which he hasn't been he hasn't been lately. It's more like the late nineties. Ben Affleck's good when he's not being bad. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Ben Affleck's great when he's not terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it is there is a, a a large spectrum. There is the point. It's not like consistent, although it has been lately. So good for him, you know. Uh, so yeah, Gone Girl is pretty good. And um, that leads us to Mank, but we're at like an hour and a half, so I think we'll just cut this episode and have this be our David Fincher talk. Cool. And we will be, we will be, 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 be. <laughs> we will be back next time to deep dive into Mank and talk about some other movies that are also about filmmaking which i find oh, to yes. be movies about movies a very interesting topic yeah we're going to talk about movies how weird is that i know multiple movies talking, <laughs> talking about movies that are about movies talking about movies about movies blah, 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 blah. we're so fucking meta bro <laughs> postmodern baby oh good chat gents thanks for uh joining us yeah thank people you out there sorry about this too for the time Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks it. for. Uh, I, I hope. I hope we've got some good recommendations for you here. I mean, really, yeah. just watch all of them. Is is yeah. basically yeah, the takeaway? If you take haven't away. seen any of these incredibly famous and well received movies that most people have seen, <laughs> go ahead. Oh come on! Because we're over here requesting <laughs> the eclectics. Yeah, and I mean, this is no like uh, we're not asking you to watch like Spielberg or Ron Howard or anything like that. Like this is not a good. This is not a large amount of movies. You could anyone listening could get through the Finch. What are we calling it? The Finchology. The Finch Finchology. <laughs> I like that. The Finchology. You could you like could that. probably skip Alien Three, although yeah, it's, yeah, that one's up to you. But all the other ones, watch them. They all have they all have a lot of value. You know, great director. Um, I don't know if we've it's 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 hard to encapsulate why he's so great, but. I hope we did a decent job. Yeah. He's just a good old boy. <laughs> he's, a, he's a good old he he's good at making them moving pictures. He makes those yeah. movie pictures and it's just like you look at his technique, you look at how he does things and it's just the best way to make movies. Yeah. It's uh yeah, I would have to put him in my top five favorite directors any type there. of person that you are too you'll find someone to root for in his movies you don't have to be you know the brad pitts or the jake gyllenhaals or the jesse eisenbergs you know it's like you will find in his movies that he treats his characters so well that like even when we were talking about the girl with the dragon tattoo i mean rooney mara is the main character but so is daniel craig and they don't steal from each other just like Edward Norton and Brad Pitt in Fight Club. So he's he must be a very good people person. He must be very good at you know dealing with other egos and and such. Um, and it works. It makes his movies great. It's strange to say that there's a, a really strong human element when we've detailed like the psychotic darkness that's in a lot of his movies. But I think that's also part of what makes it great is there is 
a genuine humanity to it at the core of, of all this all this darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, it always shines through, um, especially with Mank. I think Mank, Mank is a curious Fincher picture, but we will it get is. to that soon. We will get to that soon. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Real Weirdos signing off, and we'll be back real soon. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.